Thanks, Ashley, for reading that. And um, let me add my welcome to Woody's. It's great to see you here. My name's Pete, if uh, it's your first time here with us. And as Woody said, we've been going through a series of um, three talks so far, looking at this issue of humanity and identity. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And uh, this afternoon, this evening, we're in our fourth and final talk as we look forward to the restoration of humanity, um, looking forward to the restoration of all things, but also what will it mean to be a human being standing with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new creation? What does that um, communicate to us about our identity? And then how does that work, um, and how does the gospel work more generally to restore us in the now so that we can live as restored, redeemed would be the technical term, people in this world? Well, if we've got any hope today, we need God's help. So let me lead us in a prayer that he would speak to us clearly and reshape our hearts so that we have hearts after his own. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, thank you for your grace given to us. Thank you that as we come before you, you love us, Lord God, because we're made in your image, because your son has died for us. And you long for us to fulfill our potential of all that you intend for our lives to live as your image bearers in this, your creation. Help us to look forward now and also to consider the reality of how it impacts now so that we might be shaped by your word, so that our minds might be transformed and that we might live according to the gospel of grace. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've heard the phrase that someone is no heavenly minded, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Sometimes gets banded around, doesn't it? The idea of a kind of disconnected Christianity, something that is okay for Sundays, but has very little, if any, bearing on the rest of um, Monday through Saturday. It's often leveled, I suppose, against the church today. But um, I actually think that when you reflect on it, the greater danger is that we will be so earthly-minded that we will be no good for heaven. I think that's the real challenge for us. C.S. Lewis um, had thought a little bit about this in his own day, and he wrote this. If you will read history, you will find that those Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the whole Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, if you look through history, actually, the people who've made a dent in this world, the people who've brought real and lasting transformation into this world are precisely those who are so captured with the future reality. And it is a reality, as we'll see this afternoon, of heaven, what the Bible more descriptively calls the new creation, that it gripped them and shaped them in the now. Now, in fact, I mean, that dynamic is a dynamic which works with all kind of belief systems. The future shapes the reality profoundly. And today in culture, we're trying to reimagine futures independent of God. Since the Enlightenment, a period in the 18th century when people said we can be enlightened, we can be knowledgeable without God, we don't need God anymore, man has been on an endeavor to say, I can create my own future and I don't need God to do that. And so we've got alternative versions of the future. Two big ones that are very, very influential at the moment, though you often wouldn't kind of notice them, uh, are about how we relate as global people in a globalized world, but with nation states and ethnicity and culture. 
So on one hand, you've got cosmopolitanism. It literally comes from the Greek meaning a citizen of the world. And this view says that the way to get peace and harmony in the world is to realize that we are all part of a global humanity, that what binds us together, our common humanity, is the key thing. And actually that ethnic boundaries, national distinctions, cultural uh, nuances and differences are very often the source of tension, hatred, and drive us apart. So forget the ethnic national distinctions, just come together as a big global village. If you've heard that phrase, that's where it comes from, cosmopolitanism. Now recently, you'll have noticed in the UK and in the USA, there has been a big pushback against that with a rise and a surge of nationalism. Donald Trump and his election on the back of a surge of opinion from the so-called alt-right nationalist movement in America. And a lot of people, though not all by any means, a lot of people who voted for Brexit were about re-establishing the nation state. If you can't be strong as a nation, how can you possibly resist the forces of globalization? So strengthen your borders, strengthen your economic trade, build up the protectionist boundaries, and then as a strong nation, you negotiate your way in the world in a kind of adversarial relationship. It's crowding our news at the moment, and it's driven by a future ideology that the future will be shaped by the nations and an alternative of cosmopolitan that the future will be shaped by humanity coming together. Now, which is true? And it could not be more relevant. It is informing our economics, our social policy, but not just at a big picture level. It actually informs how we view the foreigner in our midst. Do we see them as a threat to our national sovereignty? Or do we see them as part of our common humanity? But then if we see them as our common humanity, is there anything distinctive about being British or being African-American or being Spanish or any number of nationalities? Do we just do away with that because we're all part of a global humanity? How do we relate? How do we navigate that? This comes right to the core of our identity. And one of the things we're going to see is the way that the book of Revelation, as it sets before us both the realities of now and also the future, helps us to shape and see where that future is heading. And it has a very radical but amazingly transformative vision of humanity, both individually and corporately. And the reason we're starting with the new creation, then kind of working back, is that is always the dynamic in the gospel. The dynamic in Revelation 21, we don't have time to flick it up, is that the new creation, the new, new Jerusalem, the holy city, comes down from heaven to us. It is not that we are transported to some otherworldly ethereal existence. It's not that. The new creation, the new reality, the future vision of what's going to happen breaks into this reality. That's why when Jesus Christ walked on this earth, he said, one of his favorite phrases was, the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, it's breaking in. The future is breaking in now. And actually, the great ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian is to say, the future has broken in, in your life. It's budding forth. The fruit is starting to come forward. It's not full yet, but it is substantial. It's starting to break in. Well, I wonder if it's breaking into your life. Let's have a look at how it does that as we think about the future reality. So turn back to Revelation chapter 7 if, you've, um, if you're in Romans or if you've shut your Bibles. It's on page 1,238. And as we look at this, we're going to see, first of all, the future of humanity. The future of humanity. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Let me read from verse 9 to 12. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As you look at this, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, notice the incredible unity a great multitude, verse 9, that no one could count. And they're very diverse, but their unity is that they are standing before the throne and before the, the Lamb, and they all have one heartbeat, one cry of their heart, one desire. Verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're singing a hymn of praise. It's an expression of worship. Look down at verse 11. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped. They are united in one endeavor, one worship, one love, one desire to glorify and bless God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, who sits on the throne. United. And yet you also see the diversity there as well. Every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's not just a great multitude, but it's a multitude that as you look around, you see people with cultural, national, ethnic distinctiveness, the best of what they've got to bring to the table, all of the colors of the nations, all of the songs of the nations, but united in harmony to one song tuned into God. You see, it is neither cosmopolitanism, as we'll see, nor is it nationalism. It is what we're made for, unity in diversity. How do you get that? Well, it starts with worship. Verse 11, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. We've seen over the course of this weekend as we've been looking at the issue of what it means to be a human being that at our core, we are wired to worship. We are made to worship. The fundamental orientation of every human being is one of worship. Secularism may say that's not the case, but as much as secularism tries to push down on that orientation of the human heart, it sprouts up in hundreds, if thousands of different ways. You can't stop the fundamental orientation of the human heart to worship. We are made to worship God, and that is not a religious activity primarily, that is an all-of-life activity. As we bring everything that we have before Him, recognizing it all comes from Him, and God made us that way in the garden, and we walked in the garden with him, and we worshipped and enjoyed him perfectly. All of our identity was formed by him. That's what worship means. It means to ascribe ultimate worth to someone or something, to have your identity shaped by that person or that thing. But then we turned away from God, we saw in our second talk, and our worship became corrupted. And we didn't turn from God to nothing, we turned from God to anything. If you don't worship God, you'll worship anything. Because as Bob Dylan sang, you've got to serve somebody. Oh, yeah, you've got to serve somebody. Rebecca and I went um, on our honeymoon uh, 10 years ago now um, to Thailand. And I remember when we um, got out of the plane and we needed to kind of get a taxi transfer to the hotel, we kind of went outside of the um, airport and uh, went up to a taxi. 
And um, all of the taxis, rather concerningly in Thailand, seemed to be similarly battered and bruised. I mean, there wasn't much paint left on most of the taxis. So, you know, you would, if you're sensible, you obviously look for the taxi that is in good condition because he's the man who avoids the crashes. But none of them seemed to have that. So we just kind of shrugged our shoulders and thought, OK, well, we'll pray. And we got in the taxi. And as we got in the taxi, there was just lined up on the dashboard of the taxi were all of these kind of nodding Buddhas and effigies of gods and things like that lined up. I mean, 20, 30 of them all the way across the dashboard, which I kind of wondered if he could see beyond them, and that was why he kept crashing. But anyway, I kind of said to the, the man who was driving, I said, you know, what are these? He said, very, with a big smile on his face, very proudly, he said, these are my gods. And I said to him, what do they do for you? He said, they keep me and my car safe. <laughs> I said, they're not doing a great job, are they? Now, we, we kind of, you know, we laugh at that, and we kind of, as Westerners, we think that's slightly strange to be worshipping an idol in that form, but as Westerners, we worship conceptual idols, career, popularity, relationships. We ascribe and load into good created things, but they're not intended to be God things, our ultimate value. And they define us, in the technical sense, they define our worship. When we turn away from God, we turn to anything else. But notice how in the new creation, our worship is reordered so that now we worship truly. We worship God, verse 11. Our worship is reordered. We are restored to what we were always intended to be, worshippers of the true and living God. Homo adorans is the technical term. It means the adoring, the worshipping person. That is what we are, not primarily homo sapiens or homo faber, things we know or things we make, but homo adorans, we are wired to worship. But notice how as we are wired to worship, it informs how we know and how we understand the world. Because the song here is more than just a kind of a poetic flourish. The song here communicates something about what it is we get, we understand, what forms our view of reality in that new world, the new creation that is coming to us and is breaking in. Verse 10, what is our reality? This is the reality. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we turn away from God and worship other things, we always have with that a story that we tell that justifies our worship. Virtually no one until the work of the Holy Spirit ever says, when you say to them, do you mind me asking where do you stand on Christianity? They turn around and say, to be honest, I just find the idea of God a threat. I don't like the idea that I have to you know, I have to respond to him and that he defines everything that I am and he's given me every gift. It's an affront to my human pride. So what I've decided to do is actually to set up false gods in my life and to decide to worship them instead. I know it's ridiculous, but actually that's what I choose to do because I'd rather not live for him. Have you ever heard anyone say that? No one ever says that. That is the true story of Revelation, oh sorry, of Genesis chapter 3, Romans chapter 1. That is the truth about humanity. We find God a threat, we don't want anything to do with him, we turn away from him to other things. But no one ever says that. People say things like, ah, there's just not much evidence for it. Really? The most read book of all time, the most famous person of all history, in space-time history, the only person who's ever come back from the dead, no evidence? There's more evidence for it than pretty much anything else. You read it? Ah, well, you know, it's just, I'm busy at the moment, I don't really have time. To be honest, I find it more compelling to think of mankind of having come from nothing and going to nothing. More compelling? Really? You see, we make up other narratives 
and they justify our choices to worship something else. We're very good at doing this. You know you do this. When you tell a lie and then you reinforce it with another lie and then you get so entrenched in the web of lies you can't really work out where did the truth finally end and where did your lie start? It just becomes your new narrative for your life. And we've been doing it so long. How do we find our way out of it? But as God breaks in and reorders our worship, so that comes with it a new song, a new story. Salvation belongs to our God, we sing. Because all the false gods say to us this narrative, give me your everything. Give me your all. Give me your family. Give me your most precious possessions. Give me your career. Give me your very sense of self. Give it all to me, and then I'll pay out. And you know what it's like as they never pay out. They say, give me your family, give me your devotion, you'll get partner. And when you get partner, then you'll be satisfied. And ask anyone who's made partner, they'll tell you best and worst day of their lives. Best day they finally made it, worst day, is that it? Or people who take social media. Social media says, give me your time, give me your essence, give me yourself, give me your image. And then I'll make you popular and I'll make you connect and I'll make you feel worthwhile. And you know what you find out? It's like drinking salt water, thirsty for more, never satisfied, more and more and more, more addicted, it just sucks you in. All the false gods say, give me everything and I'll pay out and they don't pay out. You know what God says? He doesn't say give me everything. He says, I don't demand anything of you. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. This is remarkable. God did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. He doesn't say, give me everything. He says, I will give you my everything. And it always satisfies. God is so different to the false gods. He's completely other than. He says, I've laid down my life for you. Salvation belongs to our God, to the sacrificial lamb, the one who laid down his life for us and he gave his all for us, so that as we find our all and everything in him, we are liberated, we are set free, we are finally satisfied. That is why that's the song we sing in the new creation. And as you do that, the final part to the song, and to, the, uh, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the final part is that we reorientate our lives so that there is a throne in our lives, but here's the punchline, we are not sitting on it anymore. We love to set up our mini thrones, don't we? We sit on those, we say, I rule the world, but of course everyone else is on their mini thrones and so we come into conflict. I remember once going for a, a jog um, uh, through the streets of Oxford when I was um, there, and I remember hearing two car horns from quite a way away. So it was on my kind of jogging route, so I thought I'd go and have a look, and so I ran along this street, and I must have been jogging for about two minutes to kind of get to it, because they were so loud. And when I got there, I saw, two, I saw two cars with two men sitting in the cars, both in a street that only one car could fit down, both leaning on their horns, shouting through their screens, reverse, go back, and the other one shouting, reverse, go back. And the most ridiculous thing about it was they both had a space immediately behind them that either one could pull into, but neither would yield. That is what we're like. I'm on my throne, get out my way, you reverse. How dare you talk to me that way, you reverse. It's like national politics, but it happens on an individual scale. And when God comes into our lives and our worship is reordered, then the throne is erected in our lives of God. And of course, when there's one throne that everyone orientates themselves around, you know what you get? Harmony. That's why orchestras don't have 30 conductors, but one. There's only harmony when there's one throne. 
That's the harmony of heaven. Reordered worship, reordered knowing. We are made as homo sapiens, and our knowing under our worship is reordered in the new creation. And finally, reordered making or working, homo faber. Look down at verses 15, 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now stick with me here, because there's a couple of moves we need to make to properly understand what's going on here. So here the word that is absolutely key is there in verse 15, they serve him day and night. Now this word serve him here, um, initially it seems like a purely religious word, but it's actually the same word we had read in our Romans 12 passage where we're told that this is an all of life thing. So this service word here kind of means an amalgamation of worship and action. So it's not a shrinking down of our action to only a religious sphere. Rather, it's a broadening out of our worship to all of life. That's what's going on. It's a serving word, which means all of life. Romans 12, as we'll see, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your whole lives to God. This is your act of service or worship. Same word. Okay, so this is the all of life word. It's not just something we do in a religious setting. Now, you might say, ah, but look, verse 15, they serve him day and night in his temple. Yes, but the big question in the new creation is, what is the temple? And the temple in the new creation, as you read Revelation, is all of the earth. The earth is full of the glory of God in the new creation. So you get this strange detail in the new creation in Revelation 21, where you find out that the new creation, the heaven we are heading for, this world made new, is a cube And you're thinking, why is it a cube? Like, why does suddenly John, in his vision on the island of Patmos, get very mathematical? And then when you read in the Old Testament, you see that the two times that a cube comes up in the Old Testament is in the tabernacle in the holiest of holies, the center of the tabernacle, and in the temple in the holiest of holies. So the fact that the whole of the new creation is described as a cube is saying the temple has broadened itself out. The temple is no longer just a small place The temple has become the whole earth. In other words, all of life now is under the glory of God. All of life now is a theater for God's glory and worship. So when we are called to serve God in his temple in the new creation, don't think Sunday and a few rotors. Think all of life, all of activity, everything we're called to do, all endeavor. All of our work, all of our making, all of our excitement, all of our planning, all of life. So this is the vision for the new creation. Just as in the Garden of Eden, we were called to fill the earth with God's glory and then to be fruitful, that is to go forth and to work and to populate the world with art and music and endeavor and the economy, all of the spheres of human endeavor. So in the new creation, we continue to do that. I mean, I wonder what you think we're gonna be doing in the new creation. Most people think it's a perpetual church service. Now, no doubt there will be wonderful singing in the new creation, but in the new creation, we live life as we were always intended to live it, and it's all of human endeavor. 
There will be music in the new creation, but there will be art in the new creation. There will be sport in the new creation. There will be technological innovation in the new creation. There will be architecture in the new creation. There will be work in the new creation. And before you groan, don't be so down on work. Work in its best moments is awesome, liberating. We looked at this in the first talk when the miners' communities, after the mines were shut down under Thatcher, they had nothing to work for. They, the whole community died. Work is so integral. See a person who's working in the full sense of the word. See a person of dignity. What are we doing in the new creation? Working. There'll be rest, of course, as well, but work. But it's perfectly fruitful work because do you see the way that the creation is restored and the, the curse is undone? In, Revel sorry, in Genesis chapter 3, we hear that the curse of the fall is sweat and hard work and it becomes difficult. Well, look at verse 16. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. It's an undoing of the curse. In other words, work in the new creation is perfect, always fulfilling, always satisfying, never a mistake made, always a sense of, oh, yes. Now, come on, you've had a good day at work maybe recently. Come on, search your memory. What was your best day at work? What was good about it? The sense of fulfillment, maybe the collaboration with people, Maybe that sense of gifting. I'm actually good at this. I can do this. What would it be like if that was just a pale shadow of your very worst day in heaven? And after the first day of that, when you go, that was amazing, I want to do it again. Guess what? You've got eternity to do it again. Oh, it will make our finest artwork like the Mona Lisa look like a child's crayon drawing. The most exquisite requiems will sound like someone banging on a cymbal out of time. Because the art and the music and the work and the full range of human endeavor will be so utterly satisfying, so utterly worshipful. Oh, what a vision. An iPad will look like a brick in the new creation because of the unfettered innovation and the perfect harmony of mankind, people, with environment and community, all under the worship of God. What a world it will be. That's the world we're heading for if you trust in Jesus Christ. That's the world that's breaking into the now. Perfect worship, perfect knowing, perfect work in all spheres of human life, all to the praise of God. I don't know about you, I want to be there. Well then, in our last five, ten minutes, let's think about how this breaks into our reality now and starts to shape us as we think about restored humanity. Athanasius, the church father writing in the fourth century, wrote a very significant book um, called The Incarnation. And in it, he had a very famous line, which basically translated is, God became man, that in him man might become like God. God became man, that in him man might become like God. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ became a human being, God himself in human form, so that the image of God could be restored in each and every human being. We might become like God. God. Is there anything more glorious? And as the new creation breaks into our present realities, flick with me to Romans chapter 12 as we look at how this impacts who we are and how we live now. Romans 12 on page 1139. And I want us to briefly see how these three areas of worship, knowledge, and work are picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 
and we see them all worked out with restoration. Page 1139, Romans 12, look first of all at how our worship is restored in this life. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. How does the gospel transform our worship in the now? As we remember the mercy of God and what mercy it is, the mercy of God that he sacrificed his son so that we don't have to be sacrificed. The Lord Jesus Christ took all of our sin and shame on him so that we will never experience it. He, the author of life, died so that we might have eternal life. That is the mercy of God. And not only that, the sending of his spirit into our lives now, the breaking in of the new creation into this world and into this reality, and the new creation to come, the mercy of God in that. But one day, you will be in a world where it will be utterly perfect, and there will be no more dying, no more sickness, no more disease, no more impairment, no more fractured human identity, no more warring between nations and cultures. It will just be the perfect world, the mercy of God that promises that to you as a gift of his mercy and grace. And he says, in view of all of that, what does that mean? Doesn't it mean he's won your heart? If God has done that for you when you were his enemy, it wins your heart. And suddenly, your heart is reoriented back to God and you say, you are my all and everything. You are everything to me. You've done everything for me. You've died for me. You've given me the very breath in my lungs, so I will worship you. Not because I'm forced to, oh, but because you've compelled me by your love to do it. Reordered worship. And it is a living sacrifice, notice, because it goes on and on and on. You keep offering it and offering and offering it as a sacrifice of praise to God with joy in your heart. Reordered worship. And it radically changes your identity. One of the things we've been saying this um, weekend is the way that the modern search for identity is between two horns of a dilemma. On one hand, we want a secure source of identity, but we also want a liberating source of identity. Secure because we need something so that when the, the winds of life buffet us, we can throw down an anchor and say that is a fixed point. And traditional society had a very secure source of identity, your family name or your nationality or ethnicity, but it was also a constraining source of identity. So it might have been secure, but it wasn't very liberating. If your family line wasn't a good one, you were bound to that. If your nation got defeated, you were bound to that. It defined you. So we said in the modern world, we say, okay, stuff being secure, we will go for the liberating source of identity. But as we pursue that, the problem is it's too insecure. So we can define ourselves in any number of a hundred of different ways, but as we do that, we're so fragile. It's so shallow. We throw down the anchor and it just pulls through the sand. We're buffeted around. But do you see how the gospel gives you a secure and liberating sense of identity, secure because it's won for you by Jesus' death and resurrection and hidden for you in heaven, totally secure. There's nothing you can do to get rid of it. You didn't do anything to earn it, so it's totally secure. It is absolutely secured in bedrock, and therefore it's an anchor for the soul. And yet it's not constraining because it's not based on your family line or your nationality or your ethnicity. It says all of those, whilst important, don't define you. And so therefore you've got great freedom as well. Only the gospel can give you a secure and liberating sense of identity, which is the great modern desire. 
So what a message we've got for the world. That thing you want, that thing the billboards are always promising and never delivering, we've got it. The gospel gives it to you. So just come to him and listen to him. Secure and liberating. Dietrich Bonhoeffer led a resistance movement against the Nazi regime from within Germany. He was a theological lecturer and a pastor, and, and, a pastor, and yet because of opposing the Nazis, he got thrown in jail and sentenced to death. Stripped of his family, his academic reputation, isolated and alone, soon to die, a few days later to be hanged by the Nazi, he wrote these words of a poem about his identity and sent it to a friend. Who am I, he wrote, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Is that who I am? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know, O oh God, I am thine. Even in prison, with everything stripped away, he had a secure source of identity and a liberating source of identity. I'm yours. Can you say that? Restored worship, restored minds. Do you notice how we're told not to conform to the pattern of this world in Romans 12, verse 2? Do not conform to the pattern of this world. You could put it this way. Do not conform to the stories the billboards try to sell you about who you are, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, let Scripture, let the mercy of God, let the worship of the true and living God shape your interaction with the world and not be shaped by your interaction with the world. Be a transforming influence on the world. Don't be a conformed influence from the world. Restored minds. We turn away from the distorted narratives. I am an individual. I am a self-made person. I can be complete and of myself. A relationship will define me. The number of likes and friends on Facebook I have will define me. My career will define me. No. God defines me. And I can be transformed. Restored minds. And lastly, restored works. Do you see the way that it changes our view of our gifting? Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. How hard that is for a human being. We're so prone to thinking too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves, but sober judgment that says, yeah, I'm gifted at these things, but they don't define me. Wow, that's so rare. Gifts, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the other. We have different gifts, and yet we all use them for the common good. The way we use our gifts, as we read on Romans 12, the way we make community, caring deeply about the other, using our gifts in the service of the other rather than self, and then as we move on from verse 9 and following the works of living in the world, being sincere hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another, honoring one another. Verse 14, even blessing those who persecute you, being a transforming agent in the world, the works of God restored by the worship and the knowledge of God in the world. Do you see how it works out? The gospel grips our hearts. It changes how we worship, which changes what we know, which changes how we live. Well, let me apply this to two important areas. We started talking about cosmopolitanism and nationalism. How does this make a difference? 
Well, here at Inspire St. James Clerkenwell, we want to be united and diverse. How does the gospel enable us to do that? The gospel says there is a source of unity here that transcends all of the diversity here. And yet the gospel also says that your diversity is not incidental to who you are. It's an essential part of who you are. But here's the punchline. It doesn't define you. So your ethnic and national and cultural distinctiveness is glorious. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So bring it to the table. Bring your best. I mean, I'm thinking partially of the uh, community lunch we've just had and all those wonderful dishes from different nations there. Isn't that a glorious picture? One meal for one community with all of the different ethnic distinctives of the different flavors and spices and colors of the nations there. What a picture. That is the picture of a united and diverse people. Bring your best to the table, but bring it in unity. And recognize that bringing a unity will mean sometimes you have to give in areas that you say, well, they're important for me, but actually the common good is the most important thing. But equally, you don't just throw away who you are, you bring your best into the community of who you are. What a wonderful picture. That's how the gospel is unique. And so the alternative between cosmopolitanism and nationalism is the gospel. Secondly, a big part of today and a big problem we have is our performance identity. It's a particular feature of Western culture. And when we define ourselves by our performance, then it corrupts community. So if I define myself by my performance and I think that I'm doing great, then I feel like I can contribute, but it makes me heavy-footed in the community, overly proud, often looking down my nose at other people. On the other hand, if I define myself by my performance and I don't think I'm doing so well, then I feel I've got nothing to contribute to the community, so I become often a burden on people around me rather than a contributor. So how do you navigate the fragility of the human ego in community? You say that it's not based on your performance. God has given each one of us gifts. They don't define you. They don't determine how valuable you are. God does. So bring your gifts to the table. But don't look down your nose at anyone. You've got your gifts. They've got their gifts. Let's all serve them for the common good. Do you see how unique it is? The only way for a cohesive community formed on the identity of the gospel. Well, there we go. So much to look forward to. So much to praise God for. Let me lead us in a prayer now. Let's bow our heads. Think of that song, Heavenly Father, in the new creation. Salvation belongs to our God. It does belong to you. We confess that now in our hearts. And to the Lamb, the one who sits on the throne. We worship and adore you. And as we do that, Lord God, as we reorientate our identity to you, so that changes what we know as we listen to Scripture, not the narratives of the world, and so that transforms the work of our hands. Help us to look forward to that future day that as it breaks into our current reality, we might be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.